Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Hello, and welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan. In the studio today, I've got a fabulous guest for you who's worked in over 200 organisations around the world, delivering transformational programmes and keynote speeches. His maker's mark are his stories, which go much deeper into the human condition than traditional organisational experiences. A former business consultant and board director, he doesn't just stop at the corporate stuff. He's also a published scientist, a poet and a writer, and won awards for consulting, training and speaking, as well as his contribution to Scottish rock music. His co-authored award-winning book on rock music in Scotland has been made into a successful musical and inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His keynotes are particularly concerned with how we manage what he calls the inner work of our relationships, organisations and cultures. Please welcome the transformation sculptor, Scott MacArthur. Scott, hi, how are you? Hi, James. Nice to meet you. It's lovely, lovely to have you on the show. I've got to ask about the rock music, Scott. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a big music man. Uh, do you play? Do you sing? What, what's, what's, yeah, what's the well, I, I do all of the above, um, but really badly. Um, right. I, right, uh, right. <laughs> I was in a, I was in a, a really bad uh, heavy rock cover band when I was a kid. Um, right. And eventually, eventually got thrown out of that because I was so poor. Um, but <laughs> but my but my passion for music is is second to nothing in my life. That, it's lovely to hear. I I yeah. um I've got a similar background. I played in the thrash band. We bought hey. me and my mate me and my mate <laughs> bought guitars at a hop shop, and uh, I don't think mine ever stayed in tune. But uh, they realised quite quickly that I couldn't do anything. Uh, my singing was awful. My, like, so they, they, they replaced me and then they went on to win an Australian Battle of the Bands competition. Did they? A couple of seasons together, travelling the country. <laughs> all sorts of stuff, yeah. Well, not, 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 been able to, not, not been able to play, never did Kurt Cobain any harm, did it? Um, no, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. In fact, I've just, I've just read a really great biography about him. He was Have a you? mad bugger. Oh, mad, he was. Mad, man. Crazy man. But... I think I think the the live you know the unplugged album is 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 absolutely beautiful. It's got everything in it from the sort of the the rawness of the the sort of what makes rock great, but it's also got that sort of passion and and agony and pain and angst. It's just oh, it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Do you know? I'm glad you've mentioned that. I absolutely of all the Nevada stuff I listen to, that's the one I listen to most. Me too. The, the backstory, which I thought was amazing, was that only a few hours before he was uh, he was in a hospital having overdosed. Was he? And he somehow managed to pull himself together, get on the stage, drink half a bottle of vodka, get the thing done, and then go off and shoot up again. Good lord! Um, I know that. Just un, 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 remarkable. How does how does rock fit into? Into business, or are they just separate passions? Well, the, the, the word passion, I guess, is the link, but I, I don't tend to to use it so much in the business world now. I did for a while because it 
what happened was um, my best friend who actually lives in Sydney uh, and I um, were chatting one night about an old Scottish venue, um, the Glasgow Apollo, where you probably know ACDC's live album. That's where that was recorded. Yep. yep. And uh, if you want blood. And um, we, we decided to do a website just, just for fun. And it went absolutely mad. I mean, it, right. it just millions of people visited it. Within a year, we had a book deal, we had a, a, a radio show, well, we had about 30 or 40 appearances on radio, we had dozens and dozens of articles written about us, um, and we ended up meeting everybody from David Coverdale to Gary Newman to Toya to, you know, it, wow. it, it was a remarkable thing. So it was a great example of, of you know, how an idea can be made into something. So mm-hmm. it's not bad from that perspective, but... A bit like a lot of things, uh, uh, some of the metaphors people use in, in, in business don't always work. And I'm not sure the music industry works as well as other things. Um, I don't touch it as much, but I, I mean, I'm so proud of it. I mean, the book we did yeah, was yeah. Uh, really successful. We did a documentary, which has sold, you know, m- many thousands of copies. And we ended up, uh, it was astonishing. We, we, we got contacted by a, a lovely fella called Tommy McGrory and Tommy... It's a bit like Jack Black. You know that film, School of Rock? Uh-huh. He's, yeah. he's a bit like Jack Black in, in Paisley in Scotland. And he, <laughs> he, um, he came to us and said, look, I'd like to make your story into a musical. So we sat down and we wrote a musical and we got some funding. We got some help from the Arts Council and from uh, uh, BBC Scotland and all the rest of it. And we put together this musical. And, James, 12,000 people turned up. How fantastic. I mean, it was... It was amazing. So I, I mean, I'm 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 very proud of it. But it's something that I tend to, you know, t- share in the pub rather than from the stage. Right. Um, right. Well, <laughs> I'm sure there's some great stories there which you probably couldn't use on the stage. But, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a wild wild thing to have. That's fabulous, Scott. It's a 10 million hits. It's had you know the website is is unbelievable, unbelievable. Fabulous, absolutely fabulous. Yeah, and you're yeah. a published so you so in in your heart of rock, you're also a published scientist. Yes, yes. Well, I started off my career when I left uh, university. I uh, somehow managed to get a job as a research scientist, right. and um, I spent um, three and a half years uh, working with a, a man who changed my life, called Professor Dougal Gardner, who just died six weeks ago, actually, mm-hmm. at the grand old age of ninety six. But uh, and him and I worked uh, on arthritis. We worked on some brain disease. We worked on uh, medical archaeology. We did all sorts of things. We even were involved in some of the the aftermath of the Lockerbie disaster. So we had a right. an amazing amazing few years together. It was wonderful. And that is, I mean, we all have backgrounds that are very different in some ways to yeah. what we do, but they also they link in as well. Does that scientific thinking or the way you I guess, learned to think as a scientist. Has that doubled into the business world for you? Yeah, and I mean, I think that is probably the thing that that I have been most surprised by in, in the last few years because after, after my scientific career, I, I stumbled about, I'm not going to pretend I had this beautifully planned uh, career in mind, and I stumbled mm-hmm. about and um, I ended up working um, in one of the big utility companies and because I was numerate, I stepped into uh, what they used to call personnel planning, you know, manpower planning in the back of the day. Okay. Um, and um, that got me into that. But the but the scientific stuff kind of faded for a while because it wasn't what um, I was having to deal with in in, in organisations at the time. Mm-hmm. But in the last probably 
gosh, 15 years now, um, I've been bringing more and more and more back into my work. And I've found that there's um, there's an appetite, not a huge appetite yet, which is still quite disappointing, but there's an appetite um, for scientific principles um, to be considered as part of the, the, the rubric of a, of a you know, a person working, whether they're a manager, a leader, or a specifically a change professional, or whatever. So yes, it is, it is, it is definitely part. And, and if you see me and hear me speak, I always talk about you know my scientific experiences because it's such a wonderful and enriching discipline to be part of. And very few folk uh, understand it properly. They think it's all about facts and about you know this sort of crazy scientists with funny hair and like, kill everybody. Well, it's not. It's it's bloody hard work. Um, um, so yeah, I do. I, I talk about it a lot nowadays. Uh, it's an important part of my work, James. What does what does the inner work of relationships, organisation, and cultures mean? Can you, how, yeah. how? Well, I, I I kind of I came at this from an angle which might might surprise you. I don't, I don't know about it, maybe it won't. Um, but I was working for one of the big technology houses. Um, where I ran a team uh, which was called the Impact Team, so I was looking at how we could make an impact on on clients, potential clients, customers, etc. And I think I realised that that, that the technology was fundamentally like a mirror of what's going inside us, going on inside us, mm-hmm. and and that took me to. Uh, I've been a, I've been a meditator for thirty years, James. I, I love it, and, I, and it's it's, it's wow. my version of a cigarette break, and. Um, I uh, put the two things together. So again, it wasn't predetermined, but I just realised that maybe I could spend time, you know, sharing the experiences I've had in in that space to help people really understand, you know, why they do things, why their habits are the way they are, why they why their beliefs are the way they are. And, and I mean, that eventually led um, four years ago. I did one of these uh, TED TEDx talks um, in Warwick, which is a huge one. It's like two and a half thousand people. And I did it, and it was all around why facts don't change people. Um, and I got real resonance from that, from the public and from organisations. So um, I think that that's where it, that was the genesis of it, certainly. Okay, give us give us an example in in a, in a client or, or somewhere you've worked recently where where you've been able to sort of help them understand um, their business better from that perspective. Well, it, a lot of the things I, I, I do is around um, is assumptions and biases. Um, I'm not in the game of, you know, using uh, scientific processes to give people reports on their biases. However, what I will do is I, I'll certainly demonstrate to them how we all see the world differently because of how we, we've developed, where we've developed, who we grew up with, um, you, know, what, what, you know, what experiences we've had. And I can do that. In a number of ways. And one of the things I do, I've got an experiment that I do live with, with audiences, and I've done it you know, with, with five people, and I've done it with literally with 5,000 people when I was working with one of the big retailers, is I get them all to imagine something and then demonstrate to them by what they see, just how differently we all see the world. So that, inner, that, inner, that inner perspective is really important. And if you're, if you're trying, if you're leading a program or you're trying to you know, change yourself or your organisation or your country even, you know, you need to get people to see things the same as you, or at least to try your best to reduce the noise. Um, right. If I use a word, I mean, if I ask everybody to, you know, imagine an iPhone, then most people would be able to do it, you know, and and they could describe it to me, and they would do it slightly differently, but uh, they would do it. But then yeah. if I ask them to describe, well, the thing we were talking about, describe music, then things will start to change. Uh, but then if you say, okay, describe value or service or any of these 
want to be used in organisations, it goes all over the place. And and people tend to go back to their own experiences. Um, and one of the things I encourage people to do is try very, very hard to bring those that, that picture, if you like, together so that everybody at least has a rough idea of what everyone else is talking about. So I do that. Yeah, I use the arts a lot, James. I use... Um, been working with an artist now for 20 years and and what he and his team do for me is they they draw you know graphical metaphors for um you know what the organization wants to see and and again pictures cut down more of the noise more of the inner stuff that's going on so you get much much more clarity in terms of your programs so i've then used that literally in dozens of transformation programs okay and and assumptions and biases come into all aspects of our lives of course but how does a how does that impact the businesses that we we work with? Well, okay. I, I mean, one of the one of the things that uh, let me give you an example, a specific example. I was I was working with the the submarine guys um, from the Ministry of Defence, the submarine cluster they call it in the in the Ministry of Defence, and my my client was the third sea lord, um, who's uh, who's now moved on. He's he's a, a diplomat American now, but Andy was his name, and Andy and I. Uh, spent a lot of time trying to understand why they were building the astute submarines at the time. These are these huge um, two billion pound uh, submarines, and we've got four of them in the UK. And morally, I, I'm not so sure about them, but certainly as a as a piece of kit, they are remarkable things. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point, um, we sat down. It was, it was a couple of us. It was, it was me and a guy called John, who was um, the ops director, and Andy, who was the third sea lord. So he's a direct job descendant of Samuel Pepys. So this is a, this guy is a fascinating fellow. And we were chatting about it. And, and he said to me, he said, and this, this really embedded in me, he said, you know what, he said, if we really had thought about this and we hadn't been so sure we were going to succeed, we would have stopped. Another guy turned to me and looked at me and he said, aha, you know what that's about, Scott, don't you? And he said, it's, it's, it's called a, the sunk cost error. I was like, what's one of them? Because even though I was a you know a scientist and reasonably numerate, I wasn't quite sure what he meant. So he said, well, put it this way. He said, we were all in actively engaged in a conspiracy of optimism. And that, I just sort of looked at him and I went, ah. The bias there was that we were going to succeed no matter what. And it's an unusual bias, that, because normally you hear biases as, as negative things. This is a positive thing. They were determined to succeed but they went 54% over budget. And uh, there's an academic uh, who writes some very dry books called Taleb. You may have heard of the Black Swan book. And that's exactly what Taleb's talking about. That's not from his book, but that's my own experience. But that's the Scottish Parliament. That's the Millennium Dome. That's the Astute Submarines. And these biases are so strong um, that they stop us from actually saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, we need to stop this, or we need to start this. We need to do this differently, or can we do it differently? So that's how important it is, and it's 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 astonishing how difficult we find that level of self awareness. You know, we don't really understand our biases, and I don't know if we can. I mean, as people think we can, I, I'm, I'm I think it's so complex. I'm not so sure, but um, we can try. And and what I try to do then is to say, okay, let's let's look at this sensibly as a scientist and a scientist would say and this is how this is where again the public quite often misinterpret science scientists for example would very rarely say this is best practice 
because they know that in complex situations, particularly involving the human brain, for goodness sake, um, you can never really guess. We don't really know how the human, we, 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 you know, we know how the cosmos works, but we don't know how a mouse operates. You know, it's uh, physics is physics is a doddle compared to biology. Um, <laughs> you know, it's so far away. I mean, we, we there are literally like said, there are a handful of theoretical biologists in the world, and there's a reason for that. It's nowhere near the theoretical level yet because we're still trying to work out the, the basics of it. So what I talk about is promising practice and say, you know, at the moment, according to the latest meta-analyses and according to the latest trends, this might work. And I'm very cautious of certainty, particularly in that area. People say, why oh, I, I use the implicit association test to show people their biases. Well, hmm. <laughs> it's not quite as good as you might think and certainly isn't accurate or as accurate as you think. So I'm listening to your, your examples there, uh, Scott, and, you know, being an old accountant, uh, well, having been a previous escaped accountant, I guess the best way to describe me. I'm and still recovering. Yeah, yes, well, I think it's something you can't recover from. Um, and you look at that and think, well, <laughs> you're talking about government businesses and it's all well and good. You know, when we yeah. spend other people's money, I mean, HS2, if that was run by a, oh. a, a corporate, it never would have happened in the first place. Are these no. issues, is it different in the corporate world? I, I don't think it is. Um, I mean, I, uh, again, a story. Um, I mean, I try very hard, sorry, another aside, but I try very hard to always base my work on storytelling and mm. uh, and the way I can get, I call it practical wisdom, and I can share practical wisdom via story. So let me tell you another story. Um I was working for a, a cell. I'm working for them actually, so I better not say who it is. It's a big retailer, and um, they were looking at bringing in one of these big um, platforms. Uh, you know, if you've heard of the Oracle or SAP, there's 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 only two or three of them really in the big market, if you like, in the in the mega projects, the sort of hundred million plus projects, and um, they were they were sure that this particular platform uh, would be the answer to the problems, and they spent about 35 million quid, um, you know, putting together a spec, putting together a launch, a pilot, all the, the good things that you do in terms of inverted commas, best practice of implement, implementation. And I sat down with them, uh, and this was a this was quite an interesting moment in my career, actually, because my managing partner was not necessarily happy with me at this point. And I said to them, you do realise you don't need this system. And there was a silence in the room. And I said, well, what you actually need is to think about it the other way around. How can you engage your people to help you be a more successful business? And it ain't going to be via one of these systems. Um, so they cancelled the system. They didn't buy it. Um, but I see it all the time. I mean, companies buy, particularly in the IT world, you know, massive. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary the amount of money they spend on IT platforms, but they won't give their staff a day off for their birthday. <laughs> You know, it, 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 it just, it, it beggars belief. And I call that, it's, it's what I mean, I'm, one of the things I'm, I'm looking at is writing a book called The Eight-Bar Paradox. And it's, and, it's, and it's a great paradox that we will spend literally hundreds of millions of pounds on technology that we know doesn't work, um, but we won't spend hundreds of pounds on giving our staff a break. It's bizarre. It's absolutely counter to the reality of how we work as well. We all know yeah. that our staff treat our clients the way we treat them. We all yeah, yeah. know that happy workers are happy people, that businesses are better. Um, you know, wherever we invest, um, yeah. doesn't even need to be money, does it? Time, giving someone time. Um, yes, yes. You know, it, it's a very simple stuff. 
it um, is make, make for a better better world absolutely but I mean, I mean again one of, one of the if you forgive me for this but I one of the other things I'm convinced of and it's something that people always look at look at me with slightly squinty eyes given my scientific training I actually think we over measure now at work right. and one of the things that I am very very evangelical about is the reduction of measurement and when you say that, I mean, it was funny. I, I said it at a conference recently um, for the HR community, and I got a standing standing ovation because they're feeling paralysed by it. There's so much measurement. But what you need to do is the right measurement. I'm not saying you should stop measurement, but I think the right measurement is the answer. And um, and one of the things I, I really am a strong pusher of is this notion of radical simplicity. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in a world where, you know, it's full of noise and, inspiring information and you know it's difficult to you know manage your day we're all time stressed measuring more is not going to help it just makes it more difficult to cope so one of the things as i say i'm very keen on is you know i've got this idea i got it from a technology buff um where and i call it the golden kpi and, and, and key performance indicator and that golden kpi is time well spent Mm-hmm. So if so if you're if you're measuring anything, measure time and say, okay, this meeting, um, did we really get value from this meeting, or was it a waste of time? And given we only live for thirty eight thousand days, and you only get about six thousand of those days to yourself and your job, um, surely we should be thinking in those terms rather than spending more and more and more time measuring, measuring, measuring. I think we need to free things up and. Certainly that notion of radical simplicity and the golden KPI is, is getting quite a bit of traction in the market for me just now, James. People are interested. Yeah, I'm sure they are. I mean, I've, I've, well, I'm, I was thinking back to my accountancy training and, uh, you know, ratio analysis. And one of the, the big aspects of, of that is how do you read a set of accounts? Now, I'm going to okay. bore everyone to sleep if I tell you all about it. But um, <laughs> the, the basis was what, is, what does it mean? Yeah. What do these numbers mean? Um, and I think in you know you've 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 unhatched something quite interesting there in my mind in terms of measurement because I believe very strongly in measuring but I I don't believe in doing stuff for the sake of it yeah um, and just because you can measure doesn't mean you should measure yeah, yeah. but also you know I, and I I just a lot with my clients I sit there and say well why are you doing that what mm. do you mean well why are you doing this and and just looking at you know the, the, it, it's that philosophy of will it make the boat go faster? Yes. If it's not going to make a better business. If it's not going to improve something, yes. then you're just doing stuff. Yeah. And if you're doing stuff, you're wasting your time. Yeah. Um, and a lot of businesses make their, their staff do that. You know, yeah. we have to do all these things. Why? Because that's what we've been told to do. Yeah. Um, and the thinking goes out the window. Um, it's almost like the, you know, I don't want to use the word delusional, but, the, you know, they believe that if they keep doing it, it'll, it something will change. And, and, <laughs> You know as well as I do. It's uh, I'm not sure there's that horrible quote of if you know if we did the same thing, expecting a different ah, sort of work, yeah. uh, attributed to about 15 people. Who yes, absolutely. Can't remember quote properly. Are businesses delusional though? Is there a level of delusion attached to all of this? Oh, there is. Just, I mean, if you if you look at the products that companies buy, um, that have no evidence behind them, uh, that simply don't work. Um, yeah, of course, there's delusion. Um, I mean, I can touch a few nerves if you like, but there, are, there is, there is. I mean, for example, Myers Briggs. Myers Briggs doesn't work. There is no evidence that it works. 
Um, the, the only the, the response you get from people who are interested in that is usually about anecdotes. Well, any scientist will tell you that anecdotes are the lowest form of evidence. It doesn't matter how many anecdotes you add together, it's not data. And yeah. um, so th- there's examples like that. And, and the other paradox, of course, and it, and it is fascinating that things that tend to, and, and, and it's fascinating this, things that tend not to work are expensive. Things that tend to work are free. So there's, you know, there's, there's, there's philosophical and psychological models like you might have heard of ocean or, you know, some of the other, the other techniques that are free. People won't use them because they're not packaged beautifully like the, the, the more expensive tools that, that the evidence is they don't work. Um, and it, it, it fascinates me. So there is a delusion there, but I have to also rein back on, on how your listeners might think there because I think most people are doing their best. You know, I, I'm not having a go at people. It's just that they, 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 they sometimes don't get the opportunity, whether it's time or over-measurement or whatever it is, the noise that's around about them. And I, I mean, I'm very interested in the, the idea of the attention economy. You know, they're, they're so busy with so much coming at them. They've not got time to do a deep dive into the thinking. And they're, they're happier reading something in, you know, some Mickey Mouse journal um, that it works than actually looking behind and, and understanding it. And I mean, to really understand a lot of this stuff, it takes decades. You know, it's not some, you can't just do, you know, do a two week course and suddenly you're a therapist. That's not how the world works. That's how how some people think it works. It's not. Oh, I'm laughing because I've I've seen so many people recently who've done weekend courses in coaching and then suddenly start a a business. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'm a coach. Okay. Well, what, what does that actually mean? You know, where's the experience that you're bringing to the party? Oh, oh, I've done a two-week course. Okay, yeah. right, go on. Absolutely uh, right. Yeah. And it, it, but again, I, I see that as somewhere I can help because um, I guess um, I mentioned earlier that practical wisdom thing. I, I yeah. hope and, and pray if that my experiences can help people shorten the path to wisdom. You know, if I can give them, you know, a connection to something or I can uh, show them something that maybe makes them surprised or go oh really um and then go off and 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 find out for themselves you know oh i remember that scottish guy saying that there was an issue with this i should go and you know i should be i I encourage them to rediscover that curiosity because a lot of the time we we lose that curiosity and i do believe that it's a it's a muscle that we don't practice enough once we get over the age of about 10 and but i have a ferocious curiosity that's my whole power behind everything i do is my curiosity well, you mentioned ten-year-olds. My my daughter's ten, and she's uh, absolutely fascinated with space at the moment. We went to uh, we were in Orlando for for uh, the Easter holidays, and we went down to Cape Canaveral to to NASA. And uh, uh, you know, ever ever since she wants to be a an astronaut, and oh, you, you watch her mind expanding and expanding as she reads and reads and reads. It's it's incredible. I hope it never stops. It's beautiful. My 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 my, my hero, and I have a few, but my my hero top of the list is Carl Sagan. Uh, who uh-huh. did the Cosmos series many many years ago, and he sadly passed away in 1986. But um, he he opened my eyes. I was at university when he was he was really at the peak of his of his powers, and mm-hmm. uh, he spoke about the beauty of it and the and the sheer size and complexity of it. And it is it's just a beautiful thing. And I that 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 it's almost like a, a spirituality without a need for a for a, 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 a another being you know it, it's so big and so massive it's wonderful but why, why does why do you think it stops when you attend then well that's a good question um 
I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, I think in a contemporary context, it's because we're so busy. And I mean, there's something, and this is this is something I often say on stage. You know, we create children who are, you know, stressed by their schoolwork, then students who are harassed by getting a good degree. And we're surprised why we have distressed and stressed employees when they leave university. Um, and I, I just don't think that's a virtuous transformation. Um, so I think again, uh, some of it's down to measurement. Um, there was a there's a one of my favourite quotes by the wonderful Ken Robinson. He said this. He said, um, "Human resources are sometimes like natural resources. You have to dig deep to find them." And I and I think that's wonderful. Human resources are like natural resources. Sometimes you have to dig deep to find them. And I think with uh. with with kids, we 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 don't allow them to mature in their, at their own pace. We still use that post-industrial revolution model in our schools, and I don't mm. think that helps. Um, there are other pressures, you know, making a living, getting a job, companies, you know, making you work in a certain way, putting a job description on you, you know, having to pay your mortgage. So there are real pressures on you to, 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 to conform, I guess. But I think it's a complex question, and I don't really know the answer to it. But what I do see is when I work with people and I try my best to get them to think, you know, be curious again, it's wonderful when you see them changing, James, and getting curious again, you know, asking the why question, you know, not not, not believing everything they're told. I just, I, I'm an absolute optimist. Um, I'm, I'm a nightmare for it, to be honest. And I look at it and I, <laughs> I firmly believe that the world is going to be better. Oh, me too. Because it is. Um, and, you know, I look at what were you talking about education there. I've, I've got one child at um, at a local secondary school and sorry, a local primary school and, and, and one at a private uh, secondary school. And I think that um, the, the difference in the teaching styles is vast. And, yeah. you know, there's, and I'm not going to be kind of, uh, you know, first world about this problem. But, you know, I, my daughter's going to have to do a set of exams called SATs. Oh, yeah. Um, the only the only purpose of those is for the school to rate itself. Yeah. Secondary schools don't look at them. The, the, the government secondary schools don't look at them. Nobody wants to know anything about them apart from the school itself. But they yeah. put these kids through stress. Um, you know, and then I look at the way my boy's being taught. He's near seven. So he's, he's, he's 12. He's, he's still very young. Yeah. Um, but he's been, he's been taught to think and to, to expand his mind and to, to, to question the, yeah. the, they're not taught facts they're taught to think and I think that's a very very important difference and yeah I, I agree with you, you know if we, if we carry that through into a business environments yeah um, you know we take people out of uni unis at unis are, for me was I grew up at uni um, you know it changed my my outlook on life completely and I think that it's it's vital that almost everybody if they can puts themselves through an experience not necessarily a formal experience but experience like that. Yeah, but when we come out, we're then just. I, mean, I came out of university full of joy and full of life, and went and photocopied for three days in my first day, couple uh, of days on an audit, and thought, God. "What the hell have I done?" Yeah, uh, you know, and you, you bash back down to the lowest level, um, and then uh, talk to prove yourself. Yes, it's a, it's 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 completely ass about. But uh, totally I'm gonna go, I'm gonna start ranting. <laughs> 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 Nothing wrong with a rant. I'm, Nothing wrong with a rant. Oh look, it's uh, you know if you ever pick up any of my vlogs, I yeah. do a lot of video casting from walking the dog, and most mostly <laughs> ranting about something. In fact, one of my mates said to me, "You should just recall it, change its name to the Daily Rant." Excellent. Um, uh, Scott, I, I, I'm so delighted you spent so much time and given us so much to think about as well. 
could you leave us with one big thought? I'd love to hear your your golden nugget, your one thing that people could do now and in the years to come to make their businesses a better place. Okay, that, that's a lovely question. Let me take you back to when I was a kid and I was uh, had a difficult experience when I was a kid and I, I had you know a serious exposure to the church and um, there was a lot wrong with that, but there was some bits of it really have helped me understand things as I, I've gone into the business world. And one of those things was the wee mistake in the Bible that I think that we could recognise and really, really turn it around to make us really appreciate what service is all about. And that mistake is called, often called the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. I think there's a typo there. I think it should be do unto others as they would have done unto them. And if we turn that around, and I've heard someone call that the platinum rule. I don't know where that came from, but I have heard someone say that. Um, I think that is absolutely magic when you think about it deeply. And St. Francis said it well. He said, you know, um, seek first to understand before being understood. Uh, Stephen Covey nicked it, of course, but it was St. Francis of Assisi who actually wrote it. And um, that, to me, is the nugget. You know, listen, engage in dialogue, engage in conversation, have strong opinions, but have them gently held. And that, for me, is the nugget. Scott, I love that. Thank you so, so much. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks very much, James. It's been a pleasure. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of The Only One Business Show, and I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts. And in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.